Welcome to the Episcopal Church of the Redeemer's Sermon Podcast. The readings appointed for this sermon are from the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 43, verse 16 through 21, Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 3, verse 4b through 14, the gospel according to John, chapter 12, verse 1 through 8, and Psalm 126. God grant us the serenity to accept the things that we cannot change, courage to change the things that we can, and the wisdom to know the difference. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, here it is, this story, the deep water, the the water that that really nourishes our hearts and our souls and and helps us to remember truly and, and, and fully who we are. The story of a a love so strong that it conquers any kind of bitterness or any kind of disregard. We love this story. We love the story of the prodigal son. We wish we heard it more and more. It only comes around once every three years, but we know it in our bones, this story. Mostly we just remember the first part. We remember the part about the son who leaves and wastes everything and then comes back and gets welcomed back. We tend to like to forget that second part where not everyone's actually happy that he's back. That the older brother is not super happy about this and has a word or two to say about it. This, of course, is the part we don't like as much because as Episcopalians, we tend to relate to the older brother a little bit more than the younger brother. It's true. The kind of people we tend to be, we don't tend to be the whole like squander our living on prostitutes type of people. Generally. Generally. We're more of the like, I did it all as best I could. What's the problem? I'm trying to be the right kind of person. I've lived right and I've acted right and I'm trying to get it right. And now somebody who just has been a total disaster shows back up and you just treat them like they're, like they're the best. We, we're a little bit more judgy that way normally. So we tend to ignore that part and just go to that first part and be like, even those terrible people God will love, isn't that amazing? And it is, by the way. It actually is amazing. I make light of it, but the reality is the love that is on display in this story is so powerful we forget almost anything else. The love of the Father, which is, of course, meant meant to illustrate the powerful and abiding love of God, is so powerful so magnificent in this story that when we think of this story, even though we call it the one of the story of the son, when we think of this story, we don't usually think about that son off in the wild, far-off country living with the pigs. We don't think about the grumpy older son back home sitting outside the party. We don't even necessarily think about the party. What do we envision? We envision that dad forgetting forgetting himself and not worrying about anything and just abandoning all sorts of uh, decorum and running towards the sun and grabbing and holding on and loving. That's what we remember because the love of this story is so powerful. But we are reading this story during Lent, of course, and, and that means we have the opportunity to use this story not only to reflect on the power of God's love, but on, frankly, where is the sin in this story? Where, where are the people who are missing it? 
That's not that hard to figure out, right? It's the sons, both of them, not one of them. So we're so used to calling the story the prodigal son, that word prodigal means wasteful, and we're used to thinking specifically of that first son. But the reality is the second son, of course, the, the oldest son is just as wasteful. They're both wasteful because they're both missing what their father has to offer in their lives. They're both missing who they are in relation to the one who made them. The, youngest, the story of the younger son is, it's almost comical. It's so, it's so cruel. He goes to his dad and says, hey, I know that you're, you know, alive, but let's just pretend that you're not, and I can have your inheritance now. That's what happens at the beginning of the story. Hey, dad, no big deal, but I know that when you die, I'm getting some stuff. Could I just have that now? And, and, and in case we're, like, not sure, you know, maybe he's like, hey, dad, can I have my half now, and then I'm going to, like, buy the plot of land next to yours? I've got some investment ideas. I think I'll really make you proud. No, he just goes as far away from everyone as humanly possible and spends every last dime of it. That first son is completely ignorant of the love that is being offered to him by his dad. He doesn't see it. But that second son, the older one, he's missing it just as much. You remember that the, the brother comes back and is the older brother happy at all? He's not like, wait, he came back? I can't even believe he's alive. He's like, they're having a party? For him? Where's my party? There's no sense of connection to his brother, but there's also no sense of connection to his father. He says, he doesn't say, Dad, I, he does say, I've been loyal and I've obeyed, but he says, Dad, I've worked like one of your servants for you. He doesn't say, Dad, I understand what it means to be a son, and, for, and I've not taken for granted the love that you have. He says, Hey, I followed the rules. And I worked my fingers to the bone and I acted like one of your employees. What's the problem, Dad? In both cases, they're missing something so profound that it is painful to read. The story is beautiful. It is also very painful because it is a story of people who are given love and don't see it. It is a story of two boys who don't realize they belong to each other and don't realize they belong to their father. It is a story Jesus tells to a whole people who do not recognize how utterly the world around them belongs to God, how fully they themselves belong to God, and by the power of that belonging to God, belong to each other. There's a wonderful chapter in James Baldwin's breakout novel, Notes of a Native Son. It's the final chapter of the book. James Baldwin is writing, he's, in this case, he's writing memoirs. He's writing uh, essays. Uh, so it's not uh, fiction, it's non-fictional stories that he's telling. And he he tells the story about how he's, this time that he's spending in this remote uh, cabin in this little mountain village in Switzerland. 
Now, this James Baldwin is an African-American uh, writer who's talking about a time in, about in the, in the mid-60s where he's living in this little chalet in Switzerland all by himself. And the thing he realizes when he gets there is, wow, these people have literally never seen a black person before in their entire lives. Not, not like not seen a lot of them, not seen them. Never seen a black person in real life. And he comments about the, his experience of being, of being experienced, of, of walking down the street and people going, oh, now, bless you. He doesn't say that, he's, that he confronts any sort of anger, hostility. This isn't a story that he tells about so that's, that's got violence or, or segregation or anything like that. It literally is a story about the novelty of him being him, of walking down the street and people being like, wow, and walking up to him and being like, you're, you're a black person. I've never seen those before. Like saying these things to him. And he has this realization in that moment that he writes about. And he realizes, he says, I never thought about this before. But what I realize is, having come from America, he says, white Americans are unique among white people in the world. Because white Americans have an intimate connection and relationship with black people, whether they want to or not. And he says, likewise, black Americans are unlike any black people in the world because of their intimate relationship and connection to white people, whether they want to have that or not. He comes away from this experience in Switzerland realizing something. Realizing that white Americans and black Americans, however much, especially in his time, but certainly still in this time, however much they want to pretend that they live separate lives, are completely and utterly connected and belonging to one another. Our pasts are fully intertwined, our present is completely connected. And this must mean our future can only be lived out together in our mutual belonging. What is the sin on display in this story? There is a denial of the connection for which we were made. There are brothers who don't acknowledge they belong to each other. There are brothers who don't recognize their own belovedness or the belovedness of the person to whom they are related by blood. We on this earth are one blood. And one of our great sins is our complete denial of the fact that we belong to each other fully. We've been working a lot throughout, throughout the past couple of years, and especially we devote our time during Lent to this work of becoming beloved community, this work of racial justice and healing and reconciliation. And I know some of you are like, man, when are we going to stop talking about this? And the answer is probably never. 
But part of the reason we keep talking about it is we are waking up to our connectedness. We are waking up to the reality that we belong to all sorts of people we never acknowledged our belonging before. We share life, and we've got to learn how to share that life more fully. And this story works so well because it's not just about different factions or different cultural groups. It's something we understand personally. We understand in our hearts our own inability to recognize we belong totally to God and we belong totally to each other. We miss it. We skip it. It's hard reading sometimes if we're honest. We don't just live in a broken society, although we do, but we don't just live in that. We live, in many ways, lives that are incomplete. Relationships that have been lost. Families that have been broken up or estranged. People who do not recognize us as their own, even though we are. People we've distanced ourselves from. This is the way that we know how to live. And it's painful. And it's incomplete. The gospel today is drawing us back to one another. And we know it. We know it. This is why our overwhelming sense when we hear this story, our overwhelming feeling, is of the magnificent love that runs towards us even when we're not sure who we are. And the beauty and the power of this story is that even though the sons don't know they belong, the father never stops loving them. Even when the two sons don't acknowledge each other, the father sees them both as beloved son. Even when both of them are completely incapable, when neither of them are able to see each other or see their father or see themselves as in true and loving relationship, the father sees it and knows it and lives it and holds on to them when they can't hold on to him, when they can't hold on to each other. This is the story of our God, the God who will not let go of us, the God who will not let us go who will hold on to us and transform us and make us know our belonging and help us to see the power and the beauty of the belonging of all the people all around us. And if we have eyes to see it and ears to hear it, we will know our belongingness. And we will allow ourselves to be transformed by God's love as we experience it in our hearts, but also allow ourselves to be transformed by God's love as we experience it in this world, in the relationships that we have and in the relationships that we are about to have with the work that we are doing. In Jesus' name.